Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Republic by Plato. Written in approximately 375 BC and translated many years later by Benjamin Jowett. The story looks at society in ancient Greece. My name is Teddy and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to all of the listeners that regularly listen to the show and share it with their friends and family. And a special thank you to all of the Anchor supporters and Patreons that continue to support the show with your monthly financial support. It really does help out and allows me to continue bringing out more episodes to help you fall asleep. If you do appreciate the podcast, a lovely way to say thank you is to leave a five-star review in iTunes or your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. It would also be awesome if you were able to share the podcast with someone you know who may also need a good night's rest. If you would like, you can say hello at boytosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the ratings. The Republic by Plato Translated by Benjamin Jowett The Republic of Plato is the longest of his works, with the exception of the laws, and is certainly the greatest of them. There are nearer approaches to modern metaphysics in the philobus and in the sophist. The politicus or statesman is more ideal. The form and institutions of the state are more clearly drawn out in the laws as works of art. The symposium and the protagoras are of higher excellence. But no other dialogue of Plato has the same largeness of view and the same perfection of style. No other shows an equal knowledge of the world or contains more of those thoughts which are new as well as old, and not of one age only, but of all. Nowhere in Plato is there a deeper irony or a greater wealth of humour or imagery, or more dramatic power. Nor in any other of his writings is the attempt made to interweave life and speculation or to connect politics with philosophy. The Republic is the centre around which the other dialogues may be grouped. 
Here, philosophy reaches the highest point to which ancient thinkers ever attained. Plato among the Greeks, like Bacon among the moderns, was the first who conceived a method of knowledge, although neither of them always distinguished the bare outline or form from the substance of truth, and both of them had to be content with an abstraction of science which was not yet realised. He was the greatest metaphysical genius who the world has seen, and in him, more than in any other ancient thinker, the germs of future knowledge are contained. The sciences of logic and psychology which have supplied so many instruments of thought to after ages, are based upon the analyses of Socrates and Plato. The principles of definition, the law of contradiction, the fallacy of arguing in a circle, the distinction between the essence and accidents of a thing or notion, between means and ends, between causes and conditions, also the division of the mind into the rational. These and other great forms of thought are all of them to be found in the Republic and were probably first invented by Plato. The greatest of all logical truths and the one of which writers on philosophy are avoided the confusion of them in his own writings. But he does not bind up truth in logical formulae. Logic is still veiled in metaphysics, and the science which he imagines to contemplate all truth and all existence is very unlike the doctrine of the syllogism which Aristotle claims to have discovered. Neither must we forget that the Republic is but the third part of a still larger design, which was to have included an ideal history of Athens, as well as a political and physical philosophy. The fragment of the Critias has given birth to a world-famous fiction, second only in importance to the tale of Troy and the legend of Arthur, and is said as a fact to have inspired some of the early navigators of the 16th century. This mythical tale, of which the subject was a history of the wars of the Ephesians against the island of Atlantis, is supposed to be founded upon an unfinished poem of Solon, to which it would have stood in the same relation as the writings of the logographers to the poems of Homer. It would have told of a struggle for liberty, intended to represent the conflict of Persia and Hallas. We may judge from the noble commencement of the Timaeus, from the fragment of the Critias itself, and from the third book of the Laws, in what manner Plato would have treated this high argument. We can only guess why the great design was abandoned, 
perhaps because Plato became sensible of some incongruity in a fictitious history, or because he had lost interest in it, or because advancing years forbade the completion of it, and we may please ourselves with the fancy that had this imagery narrative ever been finished, we should have found Plato himself sympathizing with the struggle for Hellenic independence, singing a hymn of triumph over Marathon and Salamis, perhaps making the reflection of Herodotus, where he contemplates the growth of the Athenian Empire. How brave a thing is freedom of speech, which has made the Athenians so far exceed every other state of Hellas in greatness, or more probably attributing the victory to the ancient good of order of Athens and to favour of Apollo and Athene. Again, Plato may be regarded as the captain or leader of a goodly band of followers, for in the Republic is to be found the original of Cicero's De Republica, of St. Augustine's City of God, of the Utopia of Sir Thomas More, and of the numerous other imaginary states which are framed upon the same model. The extent to which Aristotle or the Aristotelian school were indebted to him in the politics has been little recognised, and the recognition is the more necessary because it is not made by Aristotle himself. The two philosophers had more in common than they were conscious of, and probably some elements of Plato remain undetected in Aristotle. In English philosophy too, many affinities may be traced, not only in the works of the Cambridge Platonists, but in great original writers like Berkeley or Coleridge, to Plato and his ideas. That there is a truth higher than experience, of which the mind bears witness to herself, is a conviction which in our own generation has been enthusiastically asserted and is perhaps gaining ground. Of the Greek authors who at the Renaissance brought a new life into the world, Plato has had the greatest influence. The Republic of Plato is also the first treatise upon education, of which the writings of Milton and Locke, Rousseau, Jean-Paul, Goethe are the legitimate descendants, like Dante or Bunyan, he has a revelation of another life. Like Bacon, he is profoundly impressed with the unity of knowledge. In the early church, he has exercised a real influence on theology at the revival of literature on politics. Even the fragments of his words, when repeated at second hand, 
have in all ages ravished the hearts of men, who have seen reflected in them their own higher nature. He is the father of idealism in philosophy, in politics, in literature, and many of the latest conceptions of modern thinkers and statesmen, such as the unity of knowledge, the reign of law, and the equality of the genders, have been anticipated in a dream by him. The arguments of the Republic is the search after justice, the nature of which is first hinted at by Cephalus, the just and blameless old man, then discussed on the basis of proverbial morality by Socrates, then caricatured by Thrasymachus, and partially explained by Socrates, reduced to an abstraction by Glaucon and Adamantus, and having become invisible in the individual, reappears at length in the ideal state, which is constructed by Socrates. The first care of the rulers is to be education, of which an outline is drawn after the old Hellenic model, providing only for an improved religion and morality, and more simplicity in music and gymnastic, a manlier strain of poetry, and greater harmony of the individual and the state. We are thus led on to the conception of a higher state, in which no man calls anything his own, and in which there is neither marrying nor giving in marriage, and kings are philosophers, and philosophers are kings, and there is another and higher education, intellectual as well as moral and religious, of science as well of art, and not of youth only, but of the whole of life. Such a state is hardly to be realized in this world and quickly degenerates. To the perfect ideal succeeds the government of the soldier and the lover of honor, this again declining into democracy and democracy into tyranny in an imaginary but regular order having not much resemblance to the actual facts. When the wheel has come full circle, we do not begin again with a new period of human life, but we have passed from the best to the worst, and there we end. The subject is then changed, and the old quarrel of poetry and philosophy which had been more lightly treated in the earlier books of the Republic, is now resumed and fought out to a conclusion. Poetry is discovered to be an imitation thrice removed from the truth, and Homer, as well as the dramatic poets, having been condemned as an imitator, is sent into banishment along with them, 
and the idea of the state is supplemented by the revelation of a future life. The division into books, like all similar things, is probably later than the age of Plato. The natural divisions are five in number. Book one and the first half of book two, down to the paragraph beginning, I had always admired the genius of Glaucon and Adamantus, which is introductory. The first book containing a refutation of the popular and sophistical notions of justice, and concluding, like some of the earlier dialogues, without arriving at any definite result. This is to be appended a restatement of the nature of justice, according to some common opinion, and an answer is demanded to the question, what is justice stripped of appearances? The second division includes the remainder of the second and the whole of the third and fourth books, which are mainly occupied with the construction of the first state and the first education. The third division consists of the fifth and sixth and seventh books, in which philosophy rather than justice is the subject of inquiry, and the second state is constructed on principles of communism and ruled by philosophers, and the contemplation of the idea of good takes the place of the social and political virtues. In the eighth and ninth books, the perversions of states and of the individuals who correspond to them are reviewed in succession, and the nature of pleasure and the principle of tyranny are further analysed in the individual man. The tenth book is the conclusion of the whole, in which the relations of philosophy to poetry are finally determined, and the happiness of the citizens in this life, which has now been assured, is crowned by the vision of another. Or a more general division into two parts may be adopted. The first, in books one to four, containing the description of a state, framed generally in accordance with Hellenic notions of religion and morality, while in the second books, the Hellenic state is transformed into an ideal kingdom of philosophy of which all other governments are perversions. These two points of view are really opposed, and the opposition is only veiled by the genius of Plato. The Republic, like the Phaedrus, is an imperfect whole. The higher light of philosophy breaks through the regularity of the Hellenic temple, which at last fades away into the heavens. Whether this imperfection of structure arises from an enlargement of the plan, 
or from the imperfect reconcilement in the writer's own mind of the struggling elements of thought which are now first brought together by him or perhaps from the composition of the work at different times are questions like the similar question which the Iliad and the Odyssey which are worth asking but which cannot have a distinct answer. In the age of Plato, there was no regular mode of publication, and an author would have the less scruple in altering or adding to a work which was known only to a few of his friends. There is no absurdity in supposing that he may have laid his labours aside for a time, or turn from one work to another, and such interruptions would be more likely to occur in the case of a long than a short writing. In all attempts to determine the chronological order of the Platonic writings on internal evidence, this uncertainty about any single dialogue being composed at one time is a disturbing element which must be admitted to the effect longer works, such as the Republic and the Laws, more than shorter ones. But on the other hand, the seeming discrepancies of the Republic may only rise out of the discordant elements which the philosopher has attempted to unite in a single whole perhaps without being himself able to recognise the inconsistency which is obvious to us. For there is a judgement of, after ages, which few great writers have ever been able to anticipate for themselves. They do not perceive the want of connection in their own writings, or the gaps in their systems which are visible enough to those who come after them. In the beginnings of literature and philosophy, amid the first efforts of thought and language, more inconsistencies occur than now, when the paths of speculation are well worn, and the meaning of words precisely defined. For consistency too is the growth of time, and some of the greatest creations of the human mind have been wanting in unity. Tried by this test, several of the Platonic dialogues, according to our modern ideas, appear to be defective, but the deficiency is no proof that they were composed at different times or by different hands, and the supposition that the Republic was written uninterruptedly and by a continuous effort is in some degree confirmed by the numerous references from one part of the work to another. The second title, Concerning Justice, is not the one by which the Republic is quoted, either by Aristotle or or generally in antiquity, 
and like the other second titles of the Platonic Dialogues, may therefore be assumed to be of a later date. Morgenstern and others have asked whether the definition of justice, which is the professed aim or the construction of the state, is the principal argument of the work. The answer is that the two blend in one and are two faces of the same truth. For justice is the order of the state and the state is the visible embodiment of justice under the conditions of human society. The one is the soul and the other is the body and the Greek ideal of the state as of the individual, is a fair mind in a fair body. Described in Christian language, the kingdom of God is within, and yet develops into a church or external kingdom, the house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, is reduced to the proportions of an earthly building, or to use a platonic image, justice and the state are the warp and the wolf, which run through the whole texture. And when the constitution of the state is completed, the conception of justice is not dismissed, but reappears under the same or different names throughout the work both as the inner law of the individual soul and finally as the principle of rewards and punishments in another life. The virtues are based on justice, of which common honesty in buying and selling is the shadow, and justice is based on the idea of good, which is the harmony of the world, and is reflected both in the institutions of states and in motions of the heavenly bodies. The Timaeus, which takes up the political rather than the ethical side of the Republic, and is chiefly occupied with hypotheses concerning the outward world, yet contains many indications that the same law is supposed to reign over the state, over nature, and over man. Too much, however, has been made of this question, both in ancient and modern times. There is a stage of criticism in which all works, whether of nature or of art, are referred to design. Now in ancient writings, and indeed in literature generally, there remains often a large element which was not comprehended in the original design. For the plan grows under the author's hand. New thoughts occur to him in the act of writing. He has not worked out the arrangement to the end before he begins, the reader who seeks to find some one idea under which the whole may be conceived must necessarily seize on the vaguest and most general. Thus Stolbaum, 
who is easily dissatisfied with the ordinary explanations of the argument of the Republic, imagines himself to have found the true argument in the representation of human life in a state perfected by justice and governed according to the idea of good. There may be some use in such general descriptions, but they can hardly be said to express the design of the writer. The truth is that we may as well speak of many designs as of one, nor need anything be excluded from the plan of a great work to which the mind is naturally led by the association of ideas and which does not interfere with the general purpose. What kind or degree of unity is to be sought after in a building, in the plastic arts, in poetry, in prose, is a problem which has to be determined relatively to the subject matter. To Plato himself, the inquiry was the intention of the writer, or what was the principal argument of the Republic, would have been hardly intelligible, and therefore had better be at once dismissed. Is not the Republic the vehicle of three or four great truths which, to Plato's own mind, are most naturally represented in the form of the state, just as in the Jewish prophets the reign of Messiah, or the day of the Lord, or the suffering servant, or people of God, or the son of righteousness with healing in his wings only convey, to us at least, their great spiritual ideals, so through the Greek state Plato, reveals to us his own thoughts about divine perfection, which is the idea of good, like the sun in the visible world, about human perfection, which is justice, about education beginning in youth and continuing in later years, about poets and sophists and tyrants, who are the false teachers and evil rulers of mankind, about the world which is the embodiment of them, about a kingdom which exists nowhere upon earth, but is laid up in heaven to be the pattern and rule of human life. No such inspired creation is at unity with itself, any more than the clouds of heaven when the sun pierces through them. Every shade of light and dark, of truth and of fiction, which is the veil of truth, is allowable in a work of philosophical imagination. It is not all on the same plane. It easily passes from ideas to myths and fancies, from facts to figures of speech. It is not prose but poetry, at least a great part of it, and ought not to be judged by the rules of logic or the probabilities of history. 
the writer is not fashioning his ideas into an artistic whole. They take possession of him and are too much for him. We have no need, therefore, to discuss whether a state such as Plato has conceived impracticable or not, or whether the outward form or the inward life came first into the mind of the writer. For the practicability of his ideas has nothing to do with their truth, and the highest thoughts to which he attains may be truly said to bear the greatest marks of design, justice more than the external framework of the state, the idea of good more than justice, the great science of dialectic or the organization of ideas has no real content, but is only a type of method or spirit in which the higher knowledge is to be pursued by the spectator of all time and all existence. It is in the fifth, sixth and seventh books that Plato reaches the summit of speculation and these, although they fail to satisfy the requirements of a modern thinker, may therefore be regarded as the most important, as they are also the most original portions of the work. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening about Plato and the Republic. I look forward to bringing you more episodes very soon. Until then, good night.